Just a warning, there is reference to pregnancy loss in this episode, so please take care whilst listening. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint with me, Gabby Logan. Today I'm joined by one of the most decorated football coaches in the game. She has 13 major trophies to her name, including six women's Super League titles. It can only be Emma Hayes. Emma has been at the helm of Chelsea's women's football team for nearly 12 years and has led them to -to back-to-back championships and historic doubles. But even with all those trophies, it's hard to put into words the impact that Emma has had on making women's football the sellout success it is today. You can't think of Chelsea without thinking of Emma Hayes, but she's off to pastures new at the end of the season. So we speak to her at a pivotal time, about to embark on a new adventure in midlife as head coach of the US women's national team, who are four-time world champions. We're also joined by fitness coach Kate Roham to speak to her about the key points in her book, Owning Your Menopause, Fitter, Calmer, Stronger in 30 Days. That's the title of the book and the aim, obviously. But right now, let's meet Emma. Emma Hayes, thank you so much for coming on The Midpoint. I've been trying to get you on for a while and we've managed to find an hour in your incredibly packed schedule to chat all things midlife. So many exciting things happening for you in midlife. But I want to start on a quote that I read uh, that you said last year, all the pieces were coming together for you and you're enjoying things again because for a while you weren't. And I thought back to When we worked together, do you remember we did a Liverpool game at Leicester? It was 2021 Christmas and we were chatting there and I got a sense that you were kind of a little bit lost at that point in terms of whether or not you really wanted to stay day to day involved in women's football or whether punditry was going to be the thing you did or whether you actually said to me, I think I might just go back and work in business at some point. It felt that you were having a slight kind of moment of confusion or deliberation. Would I be right that that was that was a period of flux for you? Well, I think if you'd ask most people questions about whatever it is they do, you're always contemplating, you know, how much longer am I going to do it for or what am I going to do next? So I don't think maybe that was unusual. But I'm someone who I'm always constantly looking for always enjoyment first. It's always enjoyment. I want to enjoy what I'm doing. And I think probably in the family I was raised in, you were never really allowed to sort of get too comfortable. Um, so I think it's fair. It feels like a long time ago, uh, to be honest with you, and I think so much has happened since then that I almost put my own personal, I guess, objectives aside. And, yeah, that, that quote about the pieces coming together, was that also to do with your health and well-being? Because you also have spoken a lot about your endometriosis and then obviously... Yeah, I think so. I think I think because I, I suffered for such a long time without many answers and I've had to become self-taught. I've had to dig deep with my own research around you know, why Why I felt, why I felt. Um, I've always felt let down by the system. Many, many women would say the same thing. But I think once I'd, you know, a little bit like, I think for all of us, when we have that lightning bolt moment where we connect all of the dots, I felt like I'd got to the end of maybe a long search around, you know, why I was feeling the way I did. 
Yeah, because we had Emma Barnett on who's talked a lot about endometriosis. And I think women who haven't suffered with it, in fact, you know, men listening will probably have no idea of how painful it can be, how debilitating it can be, how it can kind of take over a, a woman's life. And doing all of that while you're in a high profile, high pressure job and one of your babies didn't make it, you had twins and and you're dealing with all of that you know, in that, the glare of the public kind of eye, which it's incredible. You you carried on through that period. You had eight weeks off work after you had Harry. Well, ask many women, you know, just, uh, they'll all be in the same position. And I think everything from, you know, not, not knowing any different, having to just get on. Maybe my mum's been such a champion at that, um, having three girls herself and, I don't really think my dad was a great help when we were children. So my role model was a mum who just got on with it, though she likes to remind us all of, <laughs> of what she had to endure and suffer, I think being one of them. And maybe a little bit of guilt. Of I used to say to myself, when I, when I had Harry, I was thinking, give me a female manager that's taken a year off work and been able to go back into the same job. I felt that if I did do that, it would have been impossible for me to return to work because, quite rightly, the team would have moved on to another place. And I didn't feel like I had a choice, to be honest with you, with the industry I was in, that I could take more than the period of time I did take out. But I haven't had much time to breathe, I would say, in the last... I mean, Harry's coming up six in May. I don't. I don't think... This whole entire period, I've had much time to recuperate, get fresh again, you know, contemplate, do all of those things. So, but it is what it is. But you carried on uh, winning titles and being successful and building great teams in that period where you say you didn't didn't have time really to kind of reset. So, you know, it was relentless, wasn't it? And it is relentless being yeah. a football manager. That strikes me as quite, I don't know, depressing in a way that, you know, you, you couldn't take more time because actually you make a great point. You wouldn't be able to get back into the job necessarily eight months later if somebody else had made their mark on a team. That's never going to change then, is it? How can it ever change in in the women's game or any any, any woman managing? True. I, I listened to an interview with Rachel Yankee this morning um, talking about supporting mothers in coaching. I mean, coaching in, in itself is a job that sometimes I wouldn't wish on anyone. Then to to do that as a mum with great travel, which I've had for 12 years, I don't hold anybody responsible for it. It's not like the fault of anyone um, necessarily, but perhaps I could have been a bit more demanding about what I needed, seeing I was probably one of a few women that did it. But I guess... You know, I just have a, you have to train yourself with a great support network. For me, that's absolutely crucial. And many women who work in industries that are in own sociable hours have exactly the same challenges. So I always used to think, well, why should I have any more privileges? I shouldn't. But when you work so many weekends and you don't have any really regular, it's not a nine to five job Monday, Friday. I think I was on. I think, to be honest with you, I've been on autopilot. People, their perception of you would be somebody who would shout out and would yeah. ask for that and would demand because you've been such a 
trailblazer um, and you've done so much pioneering work in this field. So if you, Emma Hayes, can't ask for that, who can? Well, I've always been about shouting for others. Like I want to, I've always thought of my place or my position as one where I'm a bit of a, I'll kick the door down for someone else sort of thing. And I, if I'm honest with you, that's been my role my whole life. It's my role in my family. I'm the middle child. I'm either breaking up the squabbling either side of me, my two sisters, but I'm always the one who, nah, I'm happy to do that, to be honest with you. But there is no denying I neglected myself. No question whatsoever in that. And I think my mum, especially when my endo really, really hit, I'd call rock bottom. I remember coming back from the World Cup and I thought I'd turned a corner because I'd been in the off season. Mm-hmm. Where really I was just. Was this the resting. Men's World Cup when you were. Uh, women's World Cup. The Women's World Cup, Cup in. Uh, no, it was the end of the Men's World Cup. That's how I can't. I, this <laughs> that is was 2022. Classic, this is a classic <laughs> menopause moment. This is a classic brain fog. So, were, were, um, you, in, were you in Qatar? <laughs> no, last year. No, it wasn't last year. My dad died last year when I came back from the World Cup. The year before, when I came home from Women's Euros. No, it was the Women's World Cup the year before. Whatever it was, women's, it was a major women, tournament. Women's World Cup was last year. Men's World Cup was 22 and Women's Euros was 22. But anyway, at some major tournament, oh, you had a moment. <laughs> I had a major moment. I came home and my mum said to me, you, you need to get this sorted. And Sally Harris, the doctor for the LMA, she's no ordinary doctor. She's a lifesaver. She had approached me at a dinner uh, where I was a guest of Sir Alex Ferguson. Like, sorry for the name drop. Moment, no, keep them going. And she came over and she threw on, down on the piece piece of paper her telephone number and she said to me, you're next. And I said, what do you mean? And when she left the table, I was sat with football managers who all talked about how they'd helped, how she'd helped all of their own individual health. And oh, the these neglect. were men and women? All men. And... I thought it was really telling. Anyway, she contacted, this was in April, and then July she contacted me. I said, I can't, I'm out of the country. She's like, when you come back, uh, we'll get it sorted. So when I, in September, I went to see her as an LMA health assessment, which they do for every football manager once a year. I walked in the door. She'd given me, you know, the, the once over and then the gynecological um, examination. She said, you need an emergency hysterectomy. And I was like, you're not even a gynecologist. But yeah. She'd sent me to someone, and within a matter of days, they're like, you, it's you're you've got stage five endometriosis. It's it's in a bad way. And I said, okay, let's go. Let's get it get it done. Took the time off. Went in for a ninety minute surgery, and five and a half hours later, the endo had taken over my whole body and caused a lot of damage. And yeah, I think. I thought I was getting well. I was just telling myself I was just trying to soldier through pain. And then when I, six months later, I realised, oh, my goodness, that's what that pain was for all those years. It was endo. So taking that pain away was absolutely amazing. And as soon as I got well, I got a diagnosis of my dad's cancer. And so I was in another state again. So I feel like it's been a tough, really personally for me a tough couple of years yeah you were very close you're a close family yeah you, yeah 
And that that's something that a lot of us in midlife are going to have to face up to losing parents, isn't it? But the time, yes. And, yes. and there's never a good time, is there? Let's be honest. But, no, there isn't. But he championed me. He was always, he always used to say to me, make sure you stand up front. Make sure you say it out loud. Make sure you stick up for everyone else. He sounds like a great father of girls. Honestly, the best. And I think of the day and age women's football didn't exist. He was the one setting up Arsenal youth teams and getting all the kids off the street in inner city London and driving them around. He's always been a champion of, of girls and women. And he saw that I would be the one that would do whatever I've done. I personally didn't see it. But I'd always go back to him, especially around women's health. And I'd be like, Dad, I really want to... I think it's really, really important. There's so much I wasn't taught at school. I didn't know anything other than how to put a condom on a cucumber. That was sex <laughs> education in Parliament Hill School. But, I, you know, I wanted to know, well, what do my ovaries do? What happens from puberty to menopause? And as so many women who I'm sure you you are speaking to, because I do listen to the podcast, we've had to become self-taught around the things we don't know about ourselves. What happens then after a hysterectomy in terms of your hormones? Wow. I remember the first 10 days in hospital and having a, entering sudden menopause. I'll never forget it. I was hallucinating in hospital. I'll never, ever forget those two days of hallucinating and climbing the walls because, one, the trauma of the surgery and an absolute you know, disappearing of estrogen and, well, my hormones. My doctor really helped get me through that. And it took a period of time. I mean, listen, apart from the fact that you can't do the most basic of things from pee, let alone walk from the first period, because I didn't have, it was quite a big surgery. I had to learn to do all of those basic things very, very slowly. And I had it was it was at a time when nobody was allowed to visit at the hospital by the team doctor at Chelsea. My son came, but he couldn't handle it, so I couldn't handle it, him visiting. And I remember sitting there for 10 days in in the middle of central London and thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm so lucky. I've been able to be whisked in here within the space of a week, and regardless of the fact that I've suffered – for the length of time I have, there's so many more women that aren't going to have this privilege because I've got private health care. And it, my little cousin's a, well, was a midwife, she's now training to be a doctor. And we, we have so many family conversations around how many gynecologists there are, how many opportunities there are for gynecologists in this country, how little funding there really is put into this space. And I genuinely think we are sold so unbelievably short, not just when it comes to women's health, but the lack of gynecological support girls and women get is shocking. Shocking. You're, you're a fighter. You're somebody who speaks up about it as well. And as you pointed out, you're, you're privileged to have the health care that meant you could get it done. And now you're back and you're doing what you love. How many women are lost out of the system, whatever they're doing, whatever, even if it's being an active member of their family, you know, and being the, the figure that everything revolves around, that that's a travesty, isn't it? Well, it's not just that. It's when you ask questions and someone will say to me, oh, my, my wife, she suffers with endometriosis. She's been on a waiting list for 24 months. And there is, there is a clear pattern. I don't care what anyone says. There is a, there is a clear pattern between 
ridiculous wait times and diagnosis, not just endo, because I can speak from a perspective of endo, but we could talk about so many other conditions uh, that go undiagnosed. The it, it, it's, it's alarming and worrying at best. And I used to always think to myself, why did women, you know, there's many reasons why women from Victorian age below died in midlife. But when you your hormones are affected in such a way, whether they're escalating out of control because of certain conditions or in the case of a sudden menopause, without the right support, you can totally understand, one, why women top themselves, and two, why they die at much earlier ages, because if we don't get those things right, the plethora of things from, you know, the, and of course not enough research is done in and around our health and our brains and the decline, the cognitive decline for us. There's this a very, you know, I, I always keep asking the question, why do more women die of heart disease and dementia than men? There is a clear correlation somewhere. And why are we robbed and sold so unbelievably short when we pay, you know, equal amounts in our national national security, you know, national insurance and taxes that they're that it's significantly underfunded. So when you got yourself kind of out of hospital and back into daily life, were you then on hormones? Were you given yeah. estrogen? I was from the very beginning because when I started to hallucinate, I couldn't handle that. Mm. I won't lie, there were some very trippy moments in hospital (laughs) which were enjoyable momentarily until I had to sleep. You know, climbing walls, literally felt like I was climbing walls, was an interesting moment. But then when I realised... that, Emma, just shows you how powerful hormones are. I was levitating out my bed. I could feel, feel myself and... I said to the doctor, I was like, you, you have to help me. I said, I haven't slept, which I, I understand I've had a big surgery and I can't sleep. But I, that first period, period was so, so tough. I remember feeling really depressed, uh, really just, just, I just wanted to be on my own. And then having to go home and, I mean, my family, they are a godsend. My mum practically moved in with me and really, really nurtured me during that period. And she had a hysterectomy too, at exactly the same age, for endo. And she really, really helped me through it, really, really helped me through it. So I was like, I was teary. I couldn't stop crying. I was, I felt afraid. I felt, I just couldn't do things that were so normal for me. And it took, it took six weeks, I'd say. And I got a little bit restless, but I, I, six weeks I had no desire to return to work on a daily you, basis. Were there days when you thought you never would? Yeah, I think if, oh yeah, 100%. I think if I'd had more financial security in many of these moments, I would have taken different decisions at different times. But I don't have that luxury, uh, contrary to you know being a successful football manager, I don't. I can't afford to take a year off work in what I do. So, and when you're responsible for a household and a child, like I said, I almost, I feel bad talking about it from my perspective because I I always think I'm always in a privileged place. 
but the reality is it's no different. My position, I don't, I don't have millions of pounds to be able to say I can do this or that. But private health insurance absolutely gave me at least a chance to heal in the best way possible. And Sally, the doctor from the... Sally um, Harris, Emma Brockwell, a pelvic floor specialist who now works with us at Chelsea. She was pivotal in the the very early days because you can't do things like turning over, let alone getting up was difficult. You can't, you know, cutting through several layers of your stomach. So she taught me how to to build my core strength again in the most basic ways and that then triggered something else around the importance of pelvic floor and then not pelvic floor in just women who have had hysterectomies or had babies but in general why pelvic floor is absolutely essential for women because of our issues with with leakage you know it happens to more than more than 50% of any woman at any age and if you don't get those things right you have to deal with them later on in life so I've tried to take the best and a breath coach oh my goodness the importance of learning uh, the value of breath and how that influences pelvic floor both meditation and breath work have been probably my lifesavers in my most anxious moments and particularly during the stages straight after hysterectomy. So when you look back at that which is not so long ago, uh, it's amazing that now you're in this position with a with a few months to go remaining as Chelsea manager, that you will then be taking on what I think is the biggest job in the world in female sport. I think being the head coach of the US women's team, I can't think of a bigger position in women's sport. I mean, obviously, if a woman was the head of the IOC or something like that, but I mean, I that that's incredible. I know. I, I, honestly, it's... My best mate, Kirsty Peeling, we've been friends since we were 12 and we grew up playing football together. And when I couldn't afford to buy my own flat, my mum my mum and dad sold their council flat and they, they gave me 40 grand and they said, you could, you know, put it towards you. And I couldn't buy anything. So my, my best mate and I bought a flat in Camden and this before children and life, uh, serious life anyway. When we used to come home after a night out in Camden, we used to like play out what it would be like leading a team in the Olympics. And maybe we probably had one too many. And I used to walk the flag around the, the front room and uh, we used to commentate about it almost yeah, childlike. We've been mates since we were kids. And I never forget that moment when I picked up the phone to her and I said, pal, you won't believe what job I've been offered. She was like, huh? You know, in fact, her dad died two weeks after mine. So we were both grieving heavily. And she just, I could hear hear her tears down the phone. And she was like, oh, Emma, I can't believe it. I can't believe you've you've got the one job you really, really wanted, you know, for a long time. And I said, I don't know what to, I feel so torn. I feel guilty. I feel why? Why? Why would you feel? Why would you feel guilty? Uh, I think a couple of things. I think because one, I've just it's been really clear how much I've loved Chelsea, and so that's been a family in itself. The thought of leaving them or abandoning them was tough. My mum, who was grieving, I couldn't even talk to her about it. I absolutely, my family didn't want any conversation around USA because for them it was like, oh my god, she's going to go again. So I had to sort of 
keep that to myself. And then I think Harry, I think I was on one level, I'm like, it's an adventure. And I'm like, his cousins live on the next street. Adventure. They live on the next street. Adventure. And it was just constant. Uh, how long How long terminal. did that process go on for before you decided, yes, I'm going to do this? Well, they courted me from directly after sort of the World Cup, or maybe the beginning of September. And it wasn't until maybe the end of October. I think, to be honest, if in fact, now I reflect on it, I just about made up my mind up when the story broke. I was still all over the place. I was still all over the place. But because I didn't want my players to hear it from anyone else, I sort of had to speak prematurely about something. In an, in an ideal world, would you have liked to have got through the season? Because it's quite hard, isn't it, having that kind of news out there? You know, but I'm I just... Again, I was I was grieving. I was on autopilot, so everything for me just felt like I just hadn't my my emotions have felt really dulled down. So I was like, how the hell can I make an important life decision in one way or another? And then I kept my dad just kept popping up in my head. Mm. Got to take it, girl. You got to mm. take it. Because he was what he would have said mm. to me a thousand times over. You've got mm. to go. So I think that kind of got me through it, even if my family really, at the time, were dealing with their own stuff. So, yeah. And then, obviously, when it, the story broke, I, I just went into cover. I just was, I, you know, then I've had everybody contact me from friends, 10 years of working out in the US, best friends who were like, why haven't you told us? <laughs> and to to players I've coached, and it just—I yeah. had to shut down. I shut off everything off. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't cope with it. To be honest. And then the exciting part is obviously the the new life. I mean, it's it's not just yeah. you know taking another club in in Europe or you know going to Lyon or something like that. This is this is moving continents, you know, and setting up home somewhere oh, no. else. Which I, I think you know that's that adventure and that kind of spirit of adventure that you've got to have to do that. I think is so important and in, you know that we we keep those those things going inside us. It's how we live, isn't it? It's 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 yeah. all life. I've, so, I've always wanted to do it for Harry. I always said I lived abroad for ten years. I will do it. I will do it at some point. So where's home going to be? Where do you where do you actually base yourself? It will be Atlanta, where the national training centre will be. It's an international airport, so I can can come back and I don't want to listen. And I I want to say this to any of the American people listening to this please don't mistake all of what I have experienced leading up to taking that decision without understanding its context because as much as I felt anxiety doubt terror I had to experience joy and excitement all at once and you have to almost sort of sit there and I wrote a pros and cons lists and just pros, Olympics, pros, World Cup, pros, <laughs> travelling, mm. pros, coaching the best, the best players, team in yeah. the world. Yeah. Like what? What an unbelievable baton to be handed. It's it's like I, I, I can't, you know. And I, I know I'll get get more and more excited once that comes to an end. But I just have to try and compartmentalise it. For now. And 
In a country where women's football has always been held in high esteem because of the because of the history and the development of football in that country, they've kind of grown together, men's and women's football, haven't they? You know, one wasn't there a long time before the other. So it's an, it's it's very unusual, isn't it? Um, the way uh, soccer has developed in America and women's football's obviously had a professional platform for a long time. So you're not having to go in and kind of you know build up from the ground. Obviously, you'll be involved, I imagine, in things, decisions that kind of uh, take place about the development of the game in America, but the structures are so enviable, aren't they? Well, when I think about what I've been able to influence at home, so much of that inspiration has come from the US anyway, because it was pretty normal to have a player on your team who had a baby who travelled with you, for example. It wasn't, I hear some horror stories, I think, and and I won't lie, one of the biggest selling points to me was how they made Harry feel. You know, it was like, well, Harry can come on camp and, you know, these. it wasn't sort of, I didn't have to broach the subject as so many women have to do. It was almost like, oh, that's a non-negotiable. That's the easy part. He's really up for this, isn't he? He was well up for it. He, he was so mature from him. I, I was the last thing I expected sitting up on his pillow and saying, oh, mummy, let's do it. Let's go to the USA. I, I really want to go. And I just cried and I hugged him and said, really, darling, really, you want to do this? He's like, yes, let's do this. <laughs> and then I then I realised when the US press officer asked him, what's your favourite state, Harry? And he said, Disneyland. And I thought, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> but listen, I, I think my sisters have never left London and for them, they're like, well, Harry's going to be leaving this all behind. And I was like, but I have left and I know what it's like and this is what I want for my life. And I want him to have that adventure up until 10. You know, I've got five years where I'm happy to create alternative situations for him uh, as long as I get it right by the time he enters secondary school. I'm okay with it, and yeah. so is he. And they'll all come out and see you all the time, won't they, family? Uh, they know. will, they will. They're, they're over that part now. Um, I think it was hard at the beginning, but totally understandable. Like, we needed each other in that period, and Dad has, was so big for us all, and we've sort of rallied round each other. Um, and they're now excited. I think they would have been torn... Sorry, Serena, if, if GB had qualified for the Olympics, but now at least, you know, they can see. So when do you actually section. take over? What's the, what's the, the date that you well, have agreed? Well, uh, probably a couple of days of the season ending. <laughs> yeah. getting, getting them ready for the Olympics, basically. Yeah, no, to be honest with you, I wouldn't want it any other way. Like I'm serious about winning. I'm serious about competing. And while I know there's... You know, transition from a younger generation coming through. I want to give it everything I've got until the Olympics, and then I'll take a break directly after the Olympics. Yeah, well, the Olympics will be energising. I'm sure. I'll see you in Paris. You know, um, <laughs> you've been to enough of them. It is the best. I mean, I, you know, I was I was at school yesterday. Primary school kids, a friend's uh, head teacher there, and asked me to go in and talk to them about the Olympics and. I was getting myself kind of emotional just talking about it. You can see these kids are five years old looking at me because I, I pulled out a few of my favourite Olympians and one of them is Catherine Granger because of her perseverance for going for gold, yeah. you know, three silvers and then the gold. And I felt the hairs at the back of my neck kind of go up because of what 
Olympics and the Olympic kind of spirit means, you know, and um, just it's such an exciting few weeks. What's your favourite part of the Olympics? There's always, I was saying to these kids yesterday, there's so many sports and, and so many different opportunities for all different shapes and sizes of humanity to, to compete in Olympic Games. You go in Olympic Village and there's everything from a seven foot man to a four foot two girl who's probably vaulting, you know, and, and it's the people and the stories, the moments that just suddenly kind of get you you know where you hear a backstory about somebody and why they what happened to them in the year before and how they you know had missed out on qualification and something got them there and then suddenly they're overachieving in that environment and it's just that kind of human spirit that I think is so it's and obviously there are certain sports that are professional going into the Olympics like tennis and golf and and nowadays obviously um, women's football is much more kind of so many more of those players are paid you know compared to kind of the past where it was the pinnacle wasn't it to go to an Olympics in terms of their professional life but actually it doesn't matter because what I think Justin Rose showed me in 2016 when he won the Olympics I was a bit cynical about golf kind of thinking these guys play like these huge championships this doesn't mean anything you could see with Justin Rose it was enormous yeah. and Andy Murray with tennis you know and yeah, so I, and I, yeah and I think those guys have kind of given my cynicism about those really professional sports being there um a, a bit of a, a kind of jolt and realize actually once, once you're there it's it's what it means to you know to be in that environment with all those people and yeah so you're gonna you're gonna have the best time and I know what it means to America hmm. having lived there I the you know the the public absolutely love the Olympics and that's why I won't waste one minute. I will I will do everything I can for that team. For they are the most Olympics. successful nation in terms of uh, medals and gold medals. So yeah, you can see they put a lot into it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Right, we're going to bring in our expert now. And she is somebody who has had some uh, pretty wretched years with her perimenopausal symptoms, um, but has turned that all around and has been a real positive kind of role model and um, influencer in this space. Kate Roham is with us. She's um, a fitness instructor who's recently written Owning Your Menopause, Fitter, Stronger and Healthier in 30 Days. Um, so I think, Emma, w- you know, your story obviously will resonate with a lot of people. And Kate, well, you've been on the podcast before of course and we've talked about how you got to grips with your perimenopause but what I love about your new book is the practicality of it the takeaway kind of advice for people welcome back thank you thank you for having me it's really lovely to be here and I've really loved the conversation you've you've had it's been really inspiring but much like you Emma yeah my um my sort of my backstory is I found myself in perimenopause with very little 
information, very little support and felt very lost, uh, very alone um, and actually was diagnosed with depression and slowly worked out what was happening and realized I was, I was 41 um, in menopause. Um, I have a young child. My, my youngest actually now says Rupert, who's seven. So it was kind of that stage where I went from sort of motherhood with a young baby, like straight into these sort of experiencing menopause. And I was kind of doing everything wrong, I guess. I was probably drinking too much. I was exercising the wrong way. I, even as a fitness instructor, didn't know what we should be doing. And um, it was exactly that I wanted to try and gift women with the tools to be able to actually help themselves. What can they do today rather than, as you've said, waiting for an appointment, waiting for help? Uh, what can they implement? And that was kind of where the book was born, was a was a practical guide with a 30 day plan. And they can start from a beginner level, moving their body, eating well and making those holistic changes. And actually, it was funny when you uh, mentioned breathwork, because I actually have a, a breathwork coach who teaches three sessions in the uh, sort of on-demand part, because again, I think we need to look at the whole encompassing way of managing menopause. Yeah, and not everybody can use HRT uh, for various reasons. Some people don't want to either. So it's not a panacea. So it's important, I think, to, to understand that there's a there's a holistic approach, isn't there? And there are all kinds of things that are going to work for, for different people. What have you found are the central kind of tenets of what your book is based around? There's the breath work, um, obviously exercise. What are you recommending lifting weight lifting <laughs> i know we always yeah. we always come on to that one but i think we are such a a generation of women where you know these hit workouts they're great they're effective for time poor women but we need to be building um our, our muscle mass we need to be focusing on our bone health and um Emmy, you talked about pelvic floors i've got lovely claire Bourne who actually does a little piece as well on pelvic floors because i think a lot of women as they come into this life stage if they are suffering from any incontinence any um, pelvic floor health issues they are Often there's that misconception that they can't lift weights, um, which then obviously can then trigger that likelihood of potentially the onset of osteoporosis, osteopenia. They're not building that strength and that muscle. And, you know, muscle's the largest organ in the body. It is. It, it helps with everything. It's there for longevity. So really the focus of, of the book is getting women to reframe as well, how they, they see themselves. I think we focus, um, or a lot of women focus so much on the aesthetic benefits of exercise, but if we can kind of reframe our why and, and, and mine is to live kind of as long, independently for as long as possible on my own. And, and Emma, resonating with your story, my dad also died two years ago um, from pancreatic cancer. And he was given six to eight weeks to live and he lived for 18 months. And that's because he was outside. He was fit. He was healthy. And I, I credit like, I, you know, I had a great time with him because he put himself in the best possible place to be. And I think that that's, that's what I want for the book. I want it to give people hope those stories that you know if we do get a diagnosis of something or we do have to go to surgery and major surgery or if we find you know because this life stage does present all of those things if you are strong stronger fitter and healthier going into it you've got a better chance of kind of coming back or perhaps you know increasing your longevity and for me it's the strength training again mentally that has just changed i know even the morning um that my dad died i'd literally been by his bed and I went and I did a weighted session and it was the first time in a long time that I totally stopped thinking about what what was going to happen to him. I, I, I was in my body and my brain were in unison and I had a moment of peace and a moment of calm before obviously, you know, the grief and all of that that hits you. So I guess it's just it's just trying to 
empower women and it's something that they can do you've talked about sort of the accessibility of it and you know i think we don't need expensive gym memberships we don't need expensive gym equipment we can do these workouts from home and we need to give every woman regardless of the dem socio-demographic whatever the background that opportunity to feel like they can also manage this life stage mm. do you do weights emma yes and i've just bought a foldable treadmill because walking and incline walking for me has been whenever I get time I will do those things but I want more time to do it and I know that I've got little windows to do it um and I grab and then I would always do 15 minute wait sessions so I know that I've only got 15 minutes I don't waste time with them I think they've been invaluable I couldn't agree more that that Without them, I think I'd have been in a worse place. And they certainly, if for those of us that don't have time to go to the gym, it's really, really easy to do with free rate weights, kettlebells, a bar. You can have the basic equipment, you know, if you want that bands and have mini little little sessions. You don't you always have do to be big ones. A lot in a small space as well. I yeah. think. You know, I've 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 mastered the art of the hotel room workout <laughs> and using a chair even. I did this one where I just thought, I've got a chair basically, what can I do with it? You know, and I was like turned it into a, a workout. You can you can be so inventive and get such a good workout from um, a small space. And I think that's the important thing to make it as democratic as possible, which is what your book is aiming to do, Kate, which is is great. Yeah, thank you. I hope so. I mean, it is, you know, it's hard out there because motivating people when they are experiencing some really debilitating symptoms can be really difficult, but it's it's taking those tiny baby steps. And I think that's the thing. Sometimes we, we want to achieve so much or we maybe want a quick fix or we want that solution just to be around the corner. But I think, you know, what I hope women can see is sort of with that 30 day plan, like literally the, the day one workout on the beginners level is, as you say, like Emma, like it's 10 minutes. Um, and it's just encouraging people to, to, to just see that how even after 30 days they can make these changes and again you know nourish their body we I mean you know, we could sit here all day and talk about it but we have got such a disordered view of food and you know with this diet and that diet how I think women don't know how to eat sometimes or how to move and so that's what I hope is just a nice practical guide on just cut back all of that nonsense go back to basics and build those foundations and just keep going. It's the first step, isn't it? You know, taking, being committed to something and saying, right, I'm going to be, you know, accountable to this and, and I'm going to, and 30 days feels doable. You know, it does feel like a period of time that you're saying, yeah, I, I can see the end of the month and I can, I can factor this into my diary and, you know, which is something I've always tried to do at the beginning of the week. I look and go, right, where am I going to get the workouts in? You know, kind of plot them and then say, no, I can't, I can't do that meeting at four because I've already committed to this, you know, to this half an hour. And, and it's that being a bit selfish, isn't it? And saying, I need that because I'm not going to be as good for everybody else if I don't get that. I was listening to an interview this morning with the incredible parents of um, the, the boy Barnaby who was in Nottingham last year and the mum uh, who was talking about what, how they're having to campaign for the, the killer to get a, a longer sentence said something about, she said, I know it's a cliche, she said, but you know when you're on a plane and they talk about the oxygen mask, you've got to look after yourself first and she said you know this is what we're experiencing right now that you know I've got to kind of think about us and, and me and how we, we get through this and actually I think that's very relevant in this period of life isn't it you've got to think without your oxygen mask on and you looking after you others around you aren't going to 
end up benefiting. So it's just taking that time and not seeing it as selfish and not being guilty, Emma, a word you've used a few times. I today. know. That's why mastering stress hormones, uh, I can't, you can't underestimate them. That's why for me, the power of meditation and breath, I, sometimes I do it on the touchline. Sometimes <laughs> I'll do it during a game. Yeah, 100%. Really? Really? Yeah, I feel if I feel my anxiety levels are increasing, I will apply some basic breath work and strategies to keep my stress hormones calm. But it's the same. Once you understand the roller coaster that they are and put it in place, the right things in the right moments, that's the other thing is the recognition of uh, am I in, does, does my body and mind need something that's going to calm me down and cool me off? Um, but, but what I've learned is just, you know, not pounding your body, uh, making sure you do the right, right things. Walking is um, an unbelievably good for you, but so is the ability to lift weights and you can do it in little chunks. You don't always have to, people always say, oh, this exercise is a long yeah, period yeah. of time. Mm. You don't have to, if you can, you can chunk things as well. You just have, I like the, the fact that you schedule it. I, I, could, I wish I'd be a bit more disciplined and maybe actually get my PA to just lock it in and just say it's a meeting with myself because I could probably do that. And I think if I did that a little more, I'd be even I'd be more disciplined with it. Particularly in the afternoons, I struggle in the afternoons to exercise. Yeah, yeah I try. I do try if I can to get it done in the morning just to kind of know it's done, you know. But um, yeah. And it's harder when, you know, Harry, my kids are older. Harry's still school age and, you know. That's why of, I struggle in the morning because yeah. he's like, he wants to play. I mean, he is Star Wars crazy at the minute, but he, and fair enough. That's yeah. his, yeah, I, yeah, he doesn't you, see me after school. So no. he wants between 7 and 8.45. He wants that time for him and, and it all ends up happening is you just keep sacrificing yourself all of the yeah. time. And so makes, sometimes I just take the 15-minute chunks at 7 p.m. I have to accept I don't want to do it then, but I, I, I might accept it in that, that window. Yeah. Um, Kate, best of luck with the book. We will see you again sometime, I'm sure. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. Take care. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Emma. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Bye. Emma, I've deliberately avoided talking kind of about the detail of, of the league this year and Chelsea and, you know, well, <laughs> because also I want this to be an episode that people can listen to any time and not go, you know, oh, what, what are they doing that week in the league? However, there is one area which I think is interesting. You've been affected again this week with an ACL injury as we speak. And it has been over the last year, shocking, actually, the number of players who've had ACLs. And some players are talking about the, the amount of, of games that, are, you know, that they're, they're playing. And, but there has to be kind of some deeper science and some deeper research into this, surely, to understand kind of why this is happening and what is it? Is it the, the amount of games? Is it the kind of training women, are, are, you know, are doing that's not right for their bodies? Where Where are you on this? And what kind of um, science are you kind of privileged to to see in reports that you're understanding are coming through? Well, I think the first thing to say is, and it is the most important, is that it's multifactorial. I don't think it's one thing. However, let's talk about twenty five years coaching you know, and just experiencing it from a coaching perspective. Two things are really, really clear to me. One is hormones and the fact that we experience, you know, the way our bodies are shaped 
our cue angles. Can't do anything about that. That's what we are. Plus, we have joint laxity in different periods of the month in a much different way. The, the, the vast majority of big injuries, particularly the ACL, I will see a big relation, a correlation between when they are done, when those injuries happen, um, and when the body and the joints might be a little bit more lax. Plus, we've done five years of research at Chelsea around injuries occurring within nine days of there being an environment change. So if they go from their club team to international or international to their club team, so if I take Mia's injury within a couple of days or five days, Sam Kerr within a couple of days of her inter- of the winter break, Anik Nowen during international break during the changes. I'm sure if you go back to Beth Mead, it was within that same period after international break, etc. I think, and this is why I've always go back to the scheduling. This is less so about the volume for me, and more so about timings plus recovery so if you think the last three calendar years the women's football calendar during covid has been absolutely horrific for the players they've had no big off season when i mean big off season i'm talking like one month plus it's been two weeks here after a season two weeks after a major event it's not enough and it hasn't been enough i also don't think it's a coincidence the, and I actually wrote about this in my book. If this happened to male players where the men's game had lost Mbappe plus Ronaldo plus Messi all at once, and we have to talk about it like that when you lose the players that have been lost to that injury, it's scandalous. So I think environment changes. So I've always been an, I have absolutely an advocate of make periods with their club longer. So like a three month period then make periods with the international team longer. And here's why. You train a certain way at the club. You then go to your national team and let's say 20 of my players go from Chelsea to wherever. They all do completely different schedules because they've only got five days before a game. So there is, so body has got into some sort of routine. You then add flying, inflammation markers. You then add where the stage they are in their mm-hmm. in their own cycle. cycle. Mm-hmm. Then the number of games and training sessions they've had in the last one, two, three years, all of those things become factors. Change of surface, boots, mm. for me, they're minimal. They're minimal for me. They're, it's yeah, the environment they're, that's more... Um, uh, I think bad. environment and hormones. Mm. Um, so, And the, the science at least, so do we do preventative work? Absolutely. Do I think there is a link between the women's game being pro, but all of those players have never really come through a pro youth setup like the boys have? Mm. Yes, I think there. I think there's well, a correlation not, yeah, there because they're not conditioned in that way through that period, are they? Maybe so. with strength training. Maybe with certain things like, you know, they start strength training when they become adults, where perhaps they had to start them slightly younger. There is, we don't produce as much testosterone. That's the other thing. So, is there a link between a lack of testosterone and that injury? I think it's all of them. 
I don't think it's one or the other. And I don't think this can solely be left science. I think that might be where the mistakes have been made. Just to look at empirical evidence through one lens Correct. is not going to actually get you. You, you, ha- you have to talk to to the people who are delivering. Like, what do the football sessions look like? Like, is there enough knowledge and experience in the loading pieces? Like, I, I sit there and I say, well, you know what? On a daily basis, ideally, every woman should be tested for inflammation markers. So whether it's, you know, pricks in the ear, you know, blood markers, we should be tested every day for that. Because if we, if our inflammation is up, plus we have joint laxity, plus, mm. plus, plus. Then you shouldn't be doing that session. Your, correct. Yeah. So, and that's why, for, plus you don't get the value of sleep, et cetera. Plus the value of nutrition. Have you had an anti-inflammatory diet during the period of joint laxity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it will go away. I think until we look at it in a very holistic way, not just, oh, here's a fee for plus warm-up or here's why. No, it's too simplistic. There has to be a collection of people together, including physios, coaches. Everybody has to to pilot pieces. The the, The reality is it will take us years perhaps when the youth section may take us another decade. A decade or another generation to kind of come through. Yes, I think so. I think we have to, but I also think there is a little bit of of like confirmation bias with it because I think they're still happening in the men's game at the same volume. I I think we don't choose to look. We look at it like it's it's a women's football thing. It isn't. It It happens a lot in the men's game. However, they're six-month injuries in the men's game. They are 11-month injuries in the women's game. That, for me, become the fundamental differences. We might get certain type of muscle injuries. I don't see the same volume of groin injuries in the women's game that I do in the men's game. So, you know, there's there's just differences. And we need we need to be a little more – we need to zoom out a little bit more with our lens – and but put together a group of experts in a more profound way, longitudinally, mm, in my yeah. opinion. And it's being, you know, the the hormonal effect on training and injuries is being talked about in other sports as well. Dina Rasher-Smith spoke out at the Olympics, didn't she? Was it the World Championships when she spoke about why certain injuries she has, you know, succumbed yeah, to? Yeah, I talked to her about it. Of the season. I spoke and, with her yeah. about it. She, she spoke about the impact for her and she said, Emma, I wish I'd had a menstrual cycle coach. Mm. And that, that, that's where the, I think they become valuable. But I also think it's not just about a menstrual cycle coach. It's experts in and around female physiology. Like, it's it's all of it. It's And I, I keep asking the same questions. Do we have enough qualifications? Is there enough in academia? Can Can young people grow up going to learn around female physiology to bring that expertise back in? I don't think it's there. We're all having to learn on the job. And I'm sure when you get to the States as well, you'll find there's there's probably other bodies of work being done on this in, you know, because it's such an interesting, if you're, if you're a sports scientist, for me, this is the area you want to be looking at right now. It's it's going to be, I think, probably revolutionary, isn't it, over the next decade or so in terms of how we look yeah. at women's sport. I think it's what we will do in the US. I think we will do some of that work when we go to Atlanta. Yeah which is coming soon and we're all I think very excited for you I think I, I, I don't think there's a, a football fan who 
didn't, you know, as much as Chelsea fans will be devastated to lose you, I think as football fans, we're so excited for you because you. we know what a huge job it is, what an opportunity and and also proud, you know, you're one of ours thanks. and you're going over there and, and doing that. So thanks, Emma thank Hayes, thank you and best of luck with your new job. Thank you. It was so great to get some time with Emma. She's about to embark on this really exciting opportunity and then to hear her speak so openly and honestly about her health struggles as well. The player care and training schedules that she's implemented in women's football are so important. The US women's international team are going to be in very safe hands. And a huge thanks to Kate Roham too. You can grab a copy of her book, Owning Your Menopause, right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it far and wide. And you can also hit follow wherever you listen so you never miss an episode when it drops. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Spiritland Creator for putting this episode together. Same time next week. I'll catch you then.